Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. Well, last week in fantasy football, I lost a close contest, so we're 0-1 to start the season, but we're hoping to bounce back this week, hoping this weekend uh, brings a little bit more uh, joy on the fantasy football front. It's a little too early to tell whether or not my draft picks will pan out and how my team's going to do. Uh, We'll see where that goes as the season moves along. I probably will have a lot more commentary and or complaining about my fantasy football team. So uh, we'll see. Like I said, it's early. Uh, Thanks for listening in again this week. And as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Your listening and following the podcast is certainly appreciated. And if you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word on social media or with your friends and colleagues. Today, my guest is Rachel Carrillo Fairchild. Rachel is an author, a speaker, and an expert on multilingual learners, or ELs, as we often refer to. Uh, So that's what we dig into. And get ready to take notes because it is an awesome conversation. Rachel's expertise will be quite evident to you as the conversation unfolds. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to talk about levels and a question that seems to keep resurfacing in workshops I'm conducting. And that is the question of why we can't or shouldn't have 0.5s on our scales. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. Rachel Carrillo Fairchild is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with something a little personal. And more to the point, a personal habit that has contributed not only to my personal growth, but to my professional success as well. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the expression, past is prologue, which of course originated as a line from Shakespeare's The Tempest. It's basically an expression that submits that everything that has happened in the past sets the context for the present. A prologue, of course, is primarily an introduction that provides a bit of foreshadowing. So in the expression, the past is prologue, the idea is that what has happened in the past foreshadows what is about to occur. Now, as a play on that expression, as much as the past might be prologue, I believe the present is epilogue. I know that's not as artful as Shakespeare, and I didn't expect it to be. But here's what I mean. First, let's begin with the idea of an epilogue, opposite of the prologue, An epilogue is at the end, and rather than foreshadowing, it offers a conclusion as to what happened, you know, past tense. So in my not-so-artful expression of present as epilogue, my habit is to bring the end to the present and do this through daily journaling that has become habitual. I write as if the future has already happened. Now let me tell you why I started this and how it has manifested into a habitual practice for me. 12 years ago was when I first started seriously contemplating resigning from my school district job to embark on this career as a speaker, an author, and a consultant. So this is two years before I actually did it. And of course, contemplating such a massive change comes with a lot of stress and 360 degrees of thoughts and possibilities. At the time, my kids were 12 and 9, so this was a big decision because, you know, a lot of responsibility with my family and all the potential ramifications that come with it. And like any human being, I was susceptible to giving a disproportionate amount of my attention to the worst case scenarios. So I was, in essence, fear-mongering myself into inaction. So as an athlete in my younger days, and certainly as a coach, as an adult, I'd always known about visualization. But what I had come to know more definitively around 2008, 2009 
was that visualization was not just about seeing pictures and rehearsing my performance. What I'd come to realize through my own personal learning and growth is that the pictures were a conduit to my emotions. The point of visualization is to generate images that positively impact your emotions and your energy. So as I was contemplating this career shift and at times overwhelming myself with worry, concern, and worst case scenario, I decided I needed to take some control over what I was feeling, and I knew that to impact how I was feeling, I had to change what I was thinking. So I drew upon my days as an athlete and a coach and began to visualize my success. In order to prevent myself from getting distracted and to build this habit, I began to write down my visualizations as if they had already occurred. Now, in the very early stages, this was the last thing I would do before going to sleep at night. I thought, well, if I could plant this positive thought and this positive energy, if that could be the last thing in my mind before falling asleep, then my mind will hopefully fixate on that while I sleep overnight. Now, I'm an early riser, so I'm pretty tired at night. So what ended up happening was I'd skip a few days because I was pretty tired and I'd go to sleep and Days became weeks and weeks became a month or two. And finally, I thought, okay, this isn't working for me. I need to find a time that works and will become habitual. So that's when I shifted to the mornings. So what I started doing then was writing some kind of positive affirmation or some sort of statement about what I was hoping to have happen as if it had already happened. So I previewed the future by writing in past tense. I wrote as if what I wanted had already occurred. And listen, I'm not talking about a PhD dissertation here, right? I'm talking about six to eight sentences. It's nothing major. But what I immediately noticed in myself was a shift in my energy and my emotions. I started with the sole purpose of shifting my energy about my potential career change, you know, the one that I was contemplating. So I started writing with prompts like, uh, you know, I'm so happy and grateful now that my book is a bestseller, or I'm so excited that my workshop is sold out and there are others trying to get in and on the waiting list. And, you know, I'd write six to eight sentences that kind of previewed uh, a lot of that. And to be clear, none of that had even occurred at all. At the time I was writing this, you know, I was at least a year or two away from my first book being published. Uh, You know, I just wrote as if what I wanted to have happen had already happened. And then, you know, you do this every day and this becomes a habit. So I started to expand the reach by, on occasion, previewing the day ahead in past tense. So maybe I had a big parent meeting coming up. So I'd write something like, You know, the parent meeting today went better than expected. It was a respectful meeting where the parent and I had a chance to express our positions and we found common ground and mutual understanding, you know, something like that. I would would sort of preview what the day's events were going to be. Did things always turn out exactly as I wrote? Of course not. Do I know for sure that any of the success I've had over the years has been attributed to this habit? Well, I'd like to think so. But I also know there are a lot of people who are more successful than me who likely never developed this habit, so who's to say? The point for me was as much about the present moment as it was about the manifestation of the future. The point was to purposefully influence my thoughts, which of course influence my emotions, which of course shift my energy in the present moment, right? Our energy comes from our emotions. Our emotions are a product of what we predominantly think about. So now, 12 years later, This has become a daily ritual for me that I really can't ever see myself letting go of. Now, I can only speak for myself, but what it does for me, right off the bat, first thing in the morning, is recalibrate my energy and set me up for what I think is going to be a productive day or a productive event or something that's going to occur that day. 
Look, it's it's not like I don't have negative thoughts, negative worries, insecurities, and all of those things. We all do. That's that's called being a human being. I think this is one of the most misunderstood parts about the whole idea of the prospect of positive thinking. It's not about ignoring reality. It's not about not acknowledging the real challenges that we all face in life. I can't definitively say that any kind of present as epilogue exercise works. What I do know is that if I want to change my situation or circumstances, what works for me is aligning my thoughts with a desirable outcome. Does positive thinking work? I don't know. Does negative thinking work? Well, I think it does, but I can't say for sure. However, here's what I think I know. Only one of those is aligned with what I want to happen. So I do my best to align myself with that positive thinking and that energy. So for me, it's more about the moment. It's more about the habit of starting my day in the right frame of mind, starting my day as if my day has already occurred. Some of you may already do this, and some of you may have think I've lost my mind. <laughs> I'm, o- I'm okay with either. But don't knock it till you try it. Even if you don't write it down, maybe you just sit for 60 seconds and visualize some of the key moments you anticipate that day. Maybe you think about some small, medium, or large success you hope to have by seeing it as if it's already occurred. You know, positive thoughts and affirmations are empty and hollow without action. It's not a magic trick, right? I can think about bestsellers and all those things if I want to, but if I never put my fingers on a keyboard, it's not going to happen. But I do know, and again, I can only speak for myself, what I do know is that by shifting my energy, I'm more likely to put my fingers on the keyboard to begin with. Like I said, I'm convinced that this habit has contributed to my success. And that alone means it has. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Joining me today for the interview is Rachel Carrillo Fairchild. Uh, Rachel is an educator, author, and consultant with nearly 30 years of experience. She has conducted workshops for teachers and administrators on multilingual learners, as well as culturally responsive teaching. She has also presented at national conferences, including ASCD and NCTM. She is the author of How to Reach and Teach English Language Learners and Common Formative Assessments for English Learners. Rachel was also the lead author of Engaged Instruction, Thriving Classrooms in the Age of Common Core, and was a contributing author of Peer Power, Activating Assessment and Assessment Revolution. Uh, Rachel, that is quite the resume. So welcome to the Tom Schumer Podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's so great to be here with you today. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you here as well, and and both a great opportunity for us to reconnect and uh, also to explore a topic that I've been wanting to dig into on this podcast for a very long time. And that is the topic, of course, of multilingual learners, or as we often say, English learners, uh, since the language of instruction in North American schools and and even international schools uh, tends to to be English in those situations. So Mm -hmm. I want to jump into that topic. But before we dig into our conversation about English language learners, let's start with you. Uh, Rachel, and the arc of your career, and and maybe talk a little bit about the impact points along that journey that led you to becoming an author, a speaker, an expert, and an advocate for multilingual learners. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that opportunity to to share about myself. So, um, you know, I'm going to start kind of with uh, back in my childhood, because I think um, just like with our English learners, um, just like all of us, my family and my background played uh, such a role in in where um, I am today. Um, so I was born and raised in Southern California. Um, my parents, uh, my mom is from a small rural, rural village in Mexico. Um, no electricity, no running water. Um, you know, we would go visit when I was a when I was a child, and it just introduced me as a as a young child to just a completely different world. You know. Know, coming from um, Southern California and going to this little village and and not having lights, having to pull water out of a out of a well, and um, you know it, it was a completely different life. Um, so Spanish was my primary language. Um, you know, I I spoke Spanish um, at home, and so when I started school, I myself was an English learner, um, which really has played into um, that whole idea of advocacy because I've I've walked in those shoes. I know what it felt like. And, and you know, I was an English learner in the 70s before, you know, before a lot of the strategies and things that we know about today. Um, and so in those days, um, being an English learner involved, you know, having headphones put on and sitting in the corner and going through a little book while everyone else was at circle time or doing other things. Um, so I, I that that experience is so etched into my memory. Um, so one of the things that I think really impacted me is, um, you know, my parents were both um, had limited education. My my mom only went to school to the second grade. Uh, my dad only went to school to the sixth grade. Um, and so for them, education um, became kind of the road or the path out of the lifestyle that they had lived and the life that they had lived, you know, where they struggled and they had lived um, through severe poverty. And, and I just remember my father from a very young age, just, you know, reminding all three of us, myself and my two brothers, you're going to get an education. You're going to go to college. It was, it was an expectation. Um, And, and he really saw that as, as, the way out um, of of living through the struggles that he and my mom had endured. And so I was the first in my family to uh, graduate from high school. I was the first to attend college, the first to go to college. Um, and and so that was that was a unique experience, kind of, you know, navigating that world, um, being the first to navigate that world um, where my parents really couldn't help me or um, assist me because they hadn't walked that path. So they, you know, they weren't able to really um, help me, but they supported me in every, you know, possible way that they could. Um, and, And so I think for that reason, kind of being the first, I stayed close to home on my, my career. I started teaching um, and taught for 10 years in the same district um, in which I went to school. So I got to work with a lot of my own teachers, uh, you know, people who had taught me, my kindergarten teacher, my first grade teacher. <laughs> um, and that was, that was, that was fantastic. And then I, I eventually um, went to the district office and I spent um, eight years at the district office as a teacher on special assignment. And I got the most amazing opportunity there because um, I went in as a math 
teacher on special assignment and also um, EL, an, my, an expertise in ELD. So um, the district really wanted to focus on improving um, our English language development program. And so they they thought that I could, you know, kind of wear two hats. It was a smaller, you know, we call it smaller in Southern California district. So we didn't have a lot of support staff at the district office. So we Basically, they cross-trained us. They had this idea to cross-train us, even though my area of expertise was math. Um, I got to go to you know, early literacy training. Um, I got to attend writing training, struggling readers training. Um, you know, just so we all got cross-trained, and that's when I was exposed to the work of. Ken O'Connor with grading and Mike Schmoker and Doug Reeves and um, Rebecca and Robert De Richard DeFore. And, and it just, you know, it was such an amazing opportunity. I just think of that time period in my career as really kind of, you know, introducing me to research and to assessment and to grading and, and really starting for me to ask questions like, how are we assessing our English learners? Um, are we assessing our English learners? You know, other than just that annual assessment that we have to do once a year that we're required to do, how do we know when our ELs change levels and 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 are we responding to that? Um, and and then I I had the great amazing fortune of going to work for Dr. Douglas Reeves at the Leadership and Learning Center. Um, left my district after 18 years and and embarked on this amazing journey that I've been on um, for the past 12 years. And he really encouraged me to write and to publish. And um, I did. I did. I never imagined that I would write a book, um, but I, I wrote my first one. And then, you know, once I wrote the first one, it was kind of focused on strategies. I started thinking, wait a minute as teachers, how can we know what strategies to, to identify or to use if we don't know where our students are in the first place? So don't we have to figure out what the student needs are first so then that we can be responsive and choose strategies that will work for that student? And so that's what got me thinking about assessment in English learners. And that's where my second book, Common Formative Assessments, um, uh, I, I embarked on writing that one because that just seemed like such an area of need. So that's yeah. that's kind of where I started and 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 where I am now. That is um, quite, as I said earlier, that is quite the resume and an incredible uh, story of success going from being an English learner yourself to sitting in the corner with headphones. And I just can't imagine what that looked like in the 1970s when you know, again, we, we didn't know as much as we do, we do now. Uh, all the way to now, we sit here in 2021 and you are uh, a published author, an expert, uh, a, a recognized leader uh, in the area of support for ELs. So um, an amazing story. Um, okay, so How to Reach and Teach English Language Learners was, was published 10 years ago, as, as you talked about, in 2011. And the first chapter mm -hmm. of that book um, was all about the current state of education for English language learners. So now here we are in 2021, 10 years later. So let's update listeners by doing a couple of things. First, what is the current state of education for ELs? And second, what have we learned over the past 10 years that makes the potential for supporting ELs that much more effective and efficient? So um, 
just like where we were in 2011, it's been a growing population, right? So we were right around 3 million um, ELs at that time. We are just about at 5 million um, English learners nationwide um, at this point. Um, what's uh, what's changed a little bit, and that demographic is kind of, um, you know, in terms of the the, the most common language uh, is Spanish. Seventy eight percent of our English learners are Spanish speakers, um, and then the the two languages uh, come in second and third, pretty close to each other, are Arabic and Chinese, mm-hmm. um, and then we have um, a host of other languages, over 400 languages spoken um, in our classrooms um, across the country. So, um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a growing population and, and an evolving population. Um, And I think that, that what we've learned, um, you know, I I try not to be cynical. Um, A lot of, you know, and I think it's because I see that you know, 10 years, 11 years later, and, and and your question really does make me kind of pause and think, you know, some things haven't changed. Some things we're still struggling with. Um, the idea of um, identifying those English learners and then um, where they go from there. How are they, how are we making sure that they're not, that they're progressing through their language acquisition just as much as they're progressing through their knowledge of content, but how are they progressing in terms of acquiring the English language. Um, and what we've learned about that is, is, you know, we used to have this figure of seven to 10 years, and that's really to achieve fluency in a second language. Um, but what we're finding in schools is that to get redesignated or reclassified from an English learner to a fluent English proficient student um, in about 2016-15, um, Uh, some research was done and and the finding was at that point, it's about 3.8 years, so about four years for students to be redesignated if they come in early, if they're identified in early elementary. Um, Now, we still know though that the same, those same challenges, and this is one of those things that it's like, you know, this is the part that hasn't really changed much, is some of our kids don't reclassify in those four years. And now they're six, seven, eight years into being identified as an English learner. They're in middle school, they're well into high school, um, you know, have gone through year after year of being told you're not proficient, you're not proficient, you're not proficient. Um, and and we end up losing some of those kids who, you know, at, along the way uh, decide that maybe their um, investment hasn't really paid off for them. And they, they, you know, they haven't ever developed that sense of efficacy. And, and so we end up losing them. Um, so that's, that's one of those challenges that I think we still have to face. Um, but at the same time, we've learned, we've learned a lot. Um, I think we're, we do a much better job of um, making sure that, you know, just on the SEL front, right, making sure that we are, um, providing students with that, um, a space to honor who they are, where they come from, what they bring and how they enrich our classrooms. Um, I think that that's something that I feel we do a much better job of now. Um, and so we're, 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 we're learning and we're growing, but still room to grow um, and still some areas where our English learners really do need us to um, step up and, you know, 
challenge ourselves and and do a little better a little bit better. Yeah. Can you clarify uh, for me something when you say the original sort of seven to 10 years or now the the 3.8 years, roughly four yes. years, we're talking about academic fluency, are we not? Are we talking about we're not talking about just conversational fluency. We're talking about being able to those those low frequency, high complex words. That's about four years for students to develop. Is that is that a fair distinction to make? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so we have, yeah. So about four years, um, for, for students to be re to be reclassified. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the, the thing, the thing that makes it challenging to talk about that is every district has different reclassification criteria. So we don't have like national, you know, reclassification criteria. So in one district, it might be a combination of grades and state tests um, and their language proficiency, um, state language proficiency assessment. Um, in another district, it might be, you know, just grades and, and the state test. So it's it's just, it's different right. from, from district to district. Yeah. But what we're talking about there is yes, within four years, um, students in those earlier, if they come in in those earlier grades, kindergarten identified, you know, as an English learner in kindergarten, first grade, they usually will reclassify the majority of them in those 3.84 years. Mm -hmm. um, um, but again, not all of them. And, and, and those are the kids that we need to worry about those long-term English yeah. learners that we're going to, I'm sure we're going to talk about. We definitely are. Yeah. It just makes me think about, you know, the difference between uh, very quickly learning to understand uh, questions or phrases, like how much does this cost or where's the restroom versus understanding the concepts of mitosis and meiosis, which are words we don't use very frequently, but they are high complex words. So your, your point about digging in uh, leads me to the next question, which is, of course, we know that ELs are not a monolith. Uh, and, and often one of my points of frustration is they often get talked about as if they are this singular monolithic group. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'd like to have you be a little bit specific with uh, different sort of EL profiles. And, and let's start with those long-term ELs, those who are, you know, again, as we mentioned, conversationally fluent. You could probably mm -hmm. have a conversation with them. They've been in your school district for a very long time. English mm -hmm. is not spoken at home. They can have a conversation with you for 15 minutes uh, about the weekend, about any sporting events or activities they did, and then they sit down to write the science test and they can't read the questions. So how do we uh, support those students? What are some of the key ideas? And we'll go through different profiles for sure, but let's start with those long-term ELs. How do we support those students? So, so long-term ELs, um, you know, and there's so many different reasons why they could end up uh, a long-term EL. They could be one of those students who had, um, you know, interrupted education. Mm -hmm. So they've, you know, left the country, come back. Um, a, a lot of our long-term ELs are kiddos who are born and raised here in the U.S. Um, you know, here definitely that's been an, a phenomenon that we're seeing more and more and more um, English learners born here. Um, so they and the, the challenge with that is they don't have a strength in either language. So providing materials for you in Spanish isn't going to help you uh, because you can't read in Spanish, but then you also can't read in English. So you don't really have a dominant language. Um, so with our long-term English learners, I think, 
you know, coming back to assessment. I think assessment is crucial. It's critical. The one time a year is not going to cut it. So that student that you just described right there, that student who can talk to you um, about their weekend and has, you know, what we call the, the BICs, the basic interpersonal communication skills, they've got that down. Um, and, and if we were to dig into their profile and look at their um, scores on a language profici proficiency assessment, what we'd probably find would be something like this. We'd find that in listening and speaking, um, you know, speaking, they're probably up there, a four or a five, right? So uh, they're, they're definitely on the higher end of language acquisition. But when you would look at their reading and writing, we'd find that those are lower. Sometimes we could have kiddos that are, you know, a four or five in listening and speaking, but they're like a one or a two in reading or writing. So that's why you get this situation where they can talk to you um, and, and almost fool us into thinking that they're more proficient than they really are. When we dig into that, to those scores, we find that they're their reading and writing scores are their reading comprehension just isn't there. Um, and so that's where those struggles come in. So the very first thing we have to do is we have to get better at assessing them. We have to get better at finding out where they are and not just once a year. Mm -hmm. We have to have some language proficiency checks along the way so that we can be responsive um, to a lack of progress. So a lack of progress might mean, or do we have a, uh, a, an issue here where their student might need um, special education services, right? Um, but that once a year assessment um, is, is um, can be devastating, I think, for some of our English learners. If we're only getting one measure a year as to where they are in their language acquisition and we're not able to be responsive, um, I think I think that really plays into the, the reason why this population has grown so much. Yeah, you are, you are speaking my language when you talk about ongoing uh, assessment and the use of assessment for uh, decisions around instruction, interventions, yes. et cetera. Absolutely. Yes. Um, let's pivot to new uh, ELs. Uh, these are students who are new to the country. Um, and they are highly proficient in their native language. So if yes. I were to give them the questions in Mandarin or Arabic or Spanish, they could knock it out of the park, but they don't speak the language of instruction. So what is the, what is the strategy? What is the support for those students? So these are our kiddos um, where I think um, one of the most important things we can do for them is just to create a, a community of inclusion um, at our schools. And, you know, I was mentioning earlier where we have really gotten a lot better at that. What I would like to see more of is I would love um, for our teachers um, to really know their population and know it well enough that um, that the students are reflected in the classroom. When they walk onto the campus, they see themselves um, in the faces on the walls, um, in the books on the shelves. Um, and, and, you know, not just uh, translations of books in English, right? So it's fantastic that we have the three little, the true story, the three little pigs, and then we have the translation of it in Spanish, but real authentic literature that is uh, from those uh, cultures 
um, of students who are coming to our schools. So I think that's the first thing is create an environment of inclusion, know that EL population, um, and then structure opportunities for students to share. Um, in those early days, um, in those early months and years um, into our country, these families are facing culture shock. Um, you know, it's a completely different way of living. I described um, in my in the introduction, just going from here to Mexico, um, you know, where I had no electricity, no running water, um, had to get used to a completely different way of life for, for just a month, though. <laughs> and then I got to come home. Um, these children and these families have lived oftentimes in places that didn't have um, a lot of the same things that we have here. And so they're dealing with culture shock. So how do we structure our schools in a way that that we're honoring those funds of knowledge that our, that our English learners bring with them um, and that we're providing opportunities for families to share their voice um, and share about themselves and become part of our community, part of our school community. Um, and I don't think there's anything better we can do than to make those families feel seen. Um, and and honored and um, to feel part of the school community, you know. And I, I it, it it's uh, I I've read um, you know research and read uh, so much about you know where they they go into schools and they talk to the to kids, especially English learners, and they ask you know, do you feel seen? Do you feel um, like your teachers care about you? And we have we have kids sitting in classrooms in middle school and high school who answer that question with a resounding no, um, and that that should worry us. Mm -hmm. If our students don't feel seen, don't feel heard, don't feel as if you know if you if you were to not show up tomorrow, do you think your teacher would notice? Do you think your teacher would? Would, would even miss you. And, and so when we're, when we're seeing that that's, you know, that's the case sometimes, um, it really, for me, reinforces the fact that this is a place we can do better mm -hmm. to really make sure that, that the students know that we see them, we hear them, we honor them, we honor what they bring to our classrooms. Um, and, and, and I think that that initially with those new yells, that's what we need to do. Um, we really need to make sure that they feel part of our community. That feels uh, very different than 10 years ago in terms of uh, the, the level of cultural awareness and cultural responsiveness that schools are attending to. I want to pick up on this idea you talked about earlier that the, the largest in the United States, the largest segment of ELs is Spanish speaking, then you said Arabic, and then you said Mandarin. So uh -huh. what if you have students, so I, the question would be, what if we have students for whom their language is a little less common in our community? So obviously there are a number of uh, dual language adults and, and those who speak Spanish and English, you, you are an example of that, where if an EL is Spanish speaking, they're probably surrounded by many people who can speak their language. But what if it's a language that is not common in our community? Something beyond, say, Arabic and Mandarin, we go down the list and we say, wow, we don't have anyone living in our small town that speaks that language. What are some of those extra considerations we need for those new ELs for whom their language is unique in that community? Absolutely. So I think one of the first things that districts have to do is, and especially in this, these, you know, rural small districts um, where, you know, if you're, if you're in an urban setting, you may, you may 
be more likely to be able to get some resources, to find instructional assistants who speak the language um, and to bring them in and, you know, have them, um, you know, Ha assist with lessons and teaching and translation. Um, but if you're not in that situation, what do you do? And so I think that one of the first things that districts need to do, and, you know, I, I get this question all the time, you know, what is the best program? What is the best um, that we can provide for our students? And the answer is, it's the best that you have the resources to provide. So if you don't have the resources um, and the, you know, the personnel to be able to um, have a bilingual program or to be able to have, um, you know, a dual language program, then then let's not attempt it because I have been in districts where, you know, because of lack of resources, they, the kids start in a bilingual kindergarten class with a fantastic bilingual teacher who does a great job with them. Um, then they go to second, uh, first grade and they don't have someone who speaks um, right. and can teach sec, uh, first grade. So now they go into a, like a mainstream first grade and then second grade, guess what? We've got a bilingual teacher again in second grade. So, mm -hmm. and, and, and so now we've got kids who are, Go, you know, bouncing back and forth between a bilingual program and a mainstream program and a bilingual and mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's no wonder that they end up not being able to reclassify in those four years mm -hmm. um, because they're by the time they leave that they, they don't have a strength in either language. So so we have to figure out what are the resources? What's the personnel we have? If the best we can do is a mainstream program with support in the primary language where we, you know, can get books from a from a publisher, um, then then we need to do the best at that. And we need to make sure that, um, you know, that we're that we're absolutely providing the support that we can. But but it. it it worries me when I see districts try to take on, um, you know, develop a program where they don't have the resources or the personnel to really do that um, program justice and to really help those students. At the end of the day, you know, they're the ones that um, that are going to, you know, face the consequences of of you know us not having a really um, you know, uh, cohesive program. So it's, for me, it's, let's do an honest look in the mirror. What do we have at our disposal? What is the best, the absolute best, you know, and when we look at those different programs, you know, absolutely a bilingual dual immersion program, that's at the top, that's the Cadillac, you know, that's the, you know, that's what we should all be aiming for. Mm -hmm. And main, the mainstream is kind of down here in terms of it's not the most desirable setting for an English learner. But if this is the best we can do, given the resources that we can that we have, then let's make sure that we do that, but we do it well. Um, and, and, and there's ways to do that. There's ways to have an effective um, mainstream program with primary language support. Right. Um, you know, because I mean, now we have technology and we have, you know, translation at, uh, uh, sources on online and videos in different languages. There's just so many more resources now um, that we could really, you know, schools, even with limited resources and, and limited um, language resources could, can still do a really good job with a yeah. mainstream program. Yeah. 
I, I feel like I know your answer, what your answer is going to be to this next one, but I'm going to ask you about special education because we know that um, ELs are often overrepresented in special education. And so how do we ensure that we are not mistaking EL for, say, LD, that we're not talking about a learning disability, we're not blending those two, and we're not overrepresenting ELs in special education? How do we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I find that the pendulum swings on that one. Okay. Um, it, it's either we're over they're overrepresented, um, and we're we're uh, we have way too many students that are being identified as special education when it's really a language issue, mm -hmm. and then we get a crackdown on that, and then it swings the other way, and then uh. no one's getting. <laughs> um, no one's being referred. And then we've got kids falling through the cracks, English mm -hmm. learners who truly have a learning disability, but because of the, um, you know, fear of, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bring this child to an SST or when it's not, maybe it's not a, a, a learning disability. Maybe it's just a language issue. So, mm -hmm. We, we have to definitely, and I, and I really, and I, I know you know what I'm going to say, but it comes down to assessment. It I comes it. down to assessment. <laughs> you know, I how, knew it. <laughs> how, yep, how, how, how am I going to know? And, yeah. and I think because of a lack of evidence, because of a lack of assessment, because we only have that one mandated language acquisition assessment a year, language proficiency assessment a year, um, we don't have enough data. And so a lot of times in, an, in the absence of data, you know, these decisions are made and um, and they're not always the right decision. Um, and we're, we're not armed with the information that we need. Uh, and so I always say if if that's if that's what we're considering for a, a, the placement for a student, we need to make sure that we're doing, you know, our, our due diligence in terms of assessing that child and finding out what what has their progress looked like did it stall did it in fact stall somewhere yeah. um and if it did you know is it because it was the language that they stalled or something happened at home did they lose a parent did right so um yeah. lo lots of considerations but we we have to find a middle ground where we're not over representing and then we're not under representing as well right yeah, uh, you know, listeners are familiar uh, with my take, which is that assessment is the engine that drives so many things, if not everything that we do. And I, I kind of knew that was going to be your answer, but I wanted to hear you say it, Rachel. <laughs> and, and now I want to I want to stick with assessment, but I want to I want to specifically talk, um, you know, briefly about grading, uh, mm -hmm. because a question I get a lot is how do I approach grading ELs when it's clear their limited language proficiency is interfering with my ability to accurately assess uh, them on the standards. Is, is that even fair? Should I even grade some standards, but maybe not grade other standards? I, I know the answer to that is fairly complex, but if you were to give schools or teachers some general guidelines for grading ELs, especially early on when it's obvious their language proficiency is an issue, what, what advice do you have for schools or for teachers around grading ELs? Oh my gosh, this is such a great question. Um, so, and, and you know, this is um, this is a big challenge out there. And I, you know, I really believe with all my heart that what we should be doing is we should be, um, especially in those early grades, 
assessing kit or grading um, our students based on their language acquisition level. Um, and so, and there's a couple of different ways to do that. Um, I know in my own district, this was something that we had developed. We went to standards-based grading, um, you know, jumped into the whole standards-based report card. And then that question, this question came up, you know, we've got students who are going, you know, into middle school. And when you look at their report cards, it's, F, 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 you know, D, C, F, F, all the way on up. And it's not because it, it literally was the, the language that's holding them back. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're not at standard yet. And the teachers would say they're making progress, like, you know, but if that's the standard, and this is where they are, they're not there yet. So I can't really give them an A, you know, just because they're making progress. So what we decided to do, and I think that this is, uh, you know, I've worked with districts on, on developing a system like this, where they either have a section on the report card where they identify, okay, in reading, in reading this student is at a level three. Um, based on level three WIDA standards, state uh, uh, language proficiency standards, this student is performing, um, you know, at a four, right? One, if, if four is on the high end of our report card, it's a standards-based report card. They're doing really well on reading level three uh, standards, language proficiency standards. Then, but then we also need a true picture of where they are on grade level. Mm -hmm. So then there's the part of the report card that has reading, writing, you know, math, um, science, social studies. That's where we would put a, a, the true reflection of on grade level standards. Now, this student might be performing at a two or a three, but they are making progress on those language acquisition standards. As a parent, that's what I want to know. As a student, that's what I want to know, right. um, because I think about the disservice that we do to our English learners by just telling them over and over and over again, you're not there yet. Right. Um, but they don't know where they are. Right. So then where am I? Am I am I any closer than I was last trimester? Am I further? Um, and so having a report card or a way of a reporting system where we can show growth, where we can show students and their parents that your child is making progress on those language acquisition standards. Um, they may not be on grade level yet, but look at this tremendous progress that they've right. made. Right. I, I think that, you know, that's, that's something that, that schools and districts can explore. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's, it's, uh, it's an honest way of truly providing that feedback to our students and getting that in their hands. It really does speak to the, uh, a comprehensive approach to reporting, which says, yes, we can report on achievement, but we should also be talking about growth and maybe even talking about, you know, my habits of learning, my, my work yes. ethic, my stick-to-itiveness, my, you know, the, the responsibility, self, those dispositional aspects mm -hmm. that gives us a complete picture of a learner. So as we, we finish up today, Rachel, I want to talk a little bit about the school or the district level from an organizational or a systems perspective. If there are uh, directors or superintendents who are listening in right now, from your perspective, what are some of the essentials or the non-negotiables that schools and districts need to have in place in order to fully support our ELs and to maximize the efficiency and the effectiveness of their collective outcomes? What, what do districts and schools kind of need to have in place structurally or systemically? 
So I think, you know, and, and this has been something that um, I've seen um, even even in the last, you know, past five years uh, where I've gone into schools and into districts um, where they don't have a solid um, English language development program. They don't have, um, you know, students aren't being provided with a designated time um, of day where it's it's focused on the structures and patterns of the English language, where that's what we're going to be learning. It's, it's, you know, and, and, um, you know, without that, you know, and I'll have districts tell me, oh, well, our teachers are doing English language development all day long. Um, it's not always happening. Um, and so when you sit in those classrooms, you know, we can think that and, and hope that that's happening. But if we don't um, have a, a systemic way of, implementing English language development uh, district-wide, school-wide, um, we're really missing the boat on making sure that we're providing that opportunity for our English learners to be successful um, at learning the language and, the, you know, the, just the language itself. So um, I think that's one of the big pieces. I think an assessment system, you know, I've mentioned it already. Um, I think one of the big pieces where we're really missing the boat and I um I believe this wholeheartedly. Um, we don't assess English learners enough. Um, we don't assess their language acquisition enough. Um, I even um, have been working in some schools on having English learners breaking down th those language acquisition levels into progressions mm -hmm. and having those English learners identify where they are on that progression um, and setting goals for themselves. Um, you know, if you're a sixth grader, sometimes we get these middle school kids who aren't allowed to pick an elective because they're forced to take, you know, um, ELD, for example. Right. Right. And they're like, what's ELD? Um, and, you know, we're having to break it to them. Well, you're an English learner. And, you know, they don't even realize that they're English learners. And then it's like, well, how do I, like, what do I do? Like, am I not going to ever get to take an elective? Um, and so how do we bring that ownership to those English learners through a robust assessment system um, where, where uh, teachers have clarity about what, English learners need the, the, the progression of the language and what they need to accomplish to get from one level to the other mm -hmm. um, and where students can see those progressions and use them to self-assess, um, peer assess, set goals um, and and, you know, really have that true ownership of their learning. Um, you know, I think that that's the other piece if if I think as schools and systems did a better uh, job of assessing English learners, I think we could identify long-term English learners before they become long-term English learners. Right. So prevent them from getting there in the first place um, and having another label uh, put on them. I feel like uh, we're going to have to have you back to uh, maybe a bonus episode to just talk about assessment because you are speaking my language and uh, to spend time talking about assessing ELs. This has been a uh, just a, a fascinating conversation, Rachel, and your expertise is clear and obvious. I've got two questions left for you. Uh, they are the typical questions I use when I finish up the interviews. Uh, the first one is uh, educationally speaking, and you could take this in any direction um, that you'd like, uh, educationally mm -hmm. speaking, what keeps you up at night? Oh, you know, 
I think uh, one of the things that that uh, really does wear on me um, recently is just this idea of the pandemic has brought to light the inequities in our system. Um, more than ever, we see them just right there. Just, you know, they just smacked us in the face uh, when this pandemic started. And we realized that students uh, of poverty, students like our English learners, special education students, the access, right, just access to uh, the basics that other students uh, have and that, you know, we kind of take for granted that all students have, um, I, you know, it, it really does. I think it's a, it's a question that we're all, you know, do we have the courage and the resolve to really face that one um, and to really, you know, do what has to be done to fix that? You know, we, I know the last 30 years I've been bombarded with this, you know, um, started with the whole with PLCs and, you know, the belief that all students can learn. And I see it in every vision statement and, you know, school, when you walk in, you know, we believe all students can learn. Um, it's not happening. You know, it's not happening. And I think that the pandemic really brought that to light that we have students who, um, who aren't having access and, um, and, and what are we going to do about it? Uh, how are we going to face that challenge? I think that's, I think that's when we, we all really should, you know, should be paying attention to. I think if there's a, a, uh, if there is a silver lining to find as a result of the pandemic, it has forced us to, for, you know, have conversations that were long overdue and also forced us to look in the mirror and say, do we really follow through on what our mission statements say about you know, these is, is all means all a cliche or do we actually live that mission uh, in our day to day lives, um, it, you know, professionally for sure. Last question right. for you, Rachel, is um, this question I've asked everyone I've interviewed so far in the podcast. And it is more of a general question about success and happiness. It's a theme I'm trying to run through the podcast and get everyone's perspective. Um, so I'm, I'm interested from your perspective when you think about. So if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? You know, I really believe um, that success is that determination to succeed, even when those around you may not believe that you can succeed. Mm. Um, and the reason, you know, one of the things um, I was in college and went to one of my professors just to ask, you know, advice. I really wanted to go to grad school and um, I'll never forget. She looked, you know, sitting at her desk, looked across at me and said, um, graduate school isn't for students like you. And wow. that just, you know, that was like one of those moments that if that's not deficit mindset in action, <laughs> that was like the definition of it. And I just remember that sinking feeling of, you know, why, why, why isn't it for students like me? What does she mean by that students like right. me? Um, and, and rather than um, allow that, allow those words to extinguish um, my desire to learn, it, it lit a fire in me. Yeah. And, and so I, I think I've subscribed to the growth mindset, even before I knew that there was a label or such a term, but, yeah. but I really do see it as, 
you know, a person who is determined to succeed um, no matter what, right? And and even if you hear voices of doubt and even if you hear you can't or, um, you know, you shouldn't, um, you persist and um, you, you, you know, chart that course and stick to it. You know, even if it, even if it means you end up in a different place than you thought you were going to end up, I never envisioned that I would be here today. That wasn't the, 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 the path that I ever imagined for myself. But, but I think that, that that's what success is. There are very few things in life that are more satisfying than proving people wrong. And uh, <laughs> you, you most certainly have done that. Uh, listeners, you can and should follow Rachel on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Rachel E.L. Author. It is the same handle on Instagram. Uh, you can find Rachel on Instagram as well. You can also find Rachel on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search her name. Uh, you'll find her on Facebook. I'll add links to the show in the show notes uh, for all of those social media accounts uh, and make sure that people can, can get in touch with you uh, if they want to reach out and, and explore Absolutely. this conversation further. Uh, as I said earlier, Rachel, this was a very insightful conversation. Uh, your expertise uh, is, is, like I said, clear and obvious. Uh, thanks so, so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to focus on a question about levels. And for some reason, this question has been coming up quite a bit uh, in many of the workshops I've been conducting uh, since, you know, over August and, and into September. So uh, it's the question about why can't we or why shouldn't we have 0.5s on our scale? Now, to clarify, it's the idea that on a four-level scale, there would also be a 0.5, a 1.5, a 2.5, and a 3.5, essentially turning four levels into eight. Now, sometimes eight becomes seven because not every school that I've seen adds the 0.5 before the 1.0. So it could be seven or eight levels, but you get the point, right? I've seen both. Okay, so here's the backdrop on the research, and some of you may recall some of the snippets of this uh, from previous episodes, but the bottom line is the research is very clear uh, that fewer, more distinguishable levels is far more reliable than a 0 to 100 scale. That is inarguable. Like, in the research, that research literally spans more than 100 years. That is fairly definitive. Even though there's no absolutes in assessment, that's become clear over and over again. Now, of course, when you hear the word reliability in assessment, you should always think about consistency, right? So in the case of grading, it's essentially a question of given the same evidence or same body of evidence, would two or more teachers draw the same conclusion about the quality or the degree to which the student has met the learning goals or the standards? So the research indicates fewer, more distinguishable levels, but it does not pinpoint the number of levels. Now, generally, I would say somewhere between two and five is, is doable. Maybe as many as seven if, you know, you want seven levels to, say, align with the diploma program of IB. But the bottom line, you get to choose as a school or a district how many levels. Okay, so you get to make that choice. The question is not how many levels can you label because clearly you could have an infinite number of levels if it was only about the labels. The question is, can you describe the difference in quality between the levels? So when asked about the 0.5s, the answer for me from me is technically, well, yes, you can have 0.5s, you could add them, as long as you can clearly articulate the difference between all eight levels. And that is where the tension occurs. Because in fairness to the students, they should know the difference between a 0.5 and a 1.0, a 1.5 and a 2.0. And that's where most get stuck. 
Just try it. Take one of your rubrics and try describing eight distinct levels of quality. All right, good luck with that. <laughs> now, often, not always, but often the desire for the 0.5s comes as we slip into a kind of normative mindset. It's like, Tom, how do I distinguish between a high three and a low three? And my response to that is, why do you need to? And more importantly, why do you want to do that? What is the obsession with being able to pinpoint out that one student is slightly higher than another student? It's the student against the criteria. That's all that should matter. Oh, but Tom, the universities, the universities want it. Uh, listen, let the universities figure it out. This job is challenging enough without you self-inflicting the college admissions process uh, on top of your grading practices. The universities will figure it out. They already do. They know what they're doing. So let them do it. Now, I also hear, um, Tom, what if they're a little bit in one category and a little bit in another? Now, when I hear that, I'm almost certain that that teacher's rubric reads more like a checklist than a description of quality. Like We have to push ourselves with our colleagues in a collaborative effort. We have to push ourselves to calibrate on criteria so that reliable, again, consistent decisions are made. Increase the number of categories and you are likely to see more variation in how teachers interpret a body of evidence. So the question is not, can you? The question is, should you? And for me, eight or even 12 levels is simply going to magnify the inconsistencies with which decisions are made. So when you think about having four levels, what we're really talking about here from four to one is, does the student have a deep or a competent or a partial or a beginner level understanding. If you're using three levels, then we would talk about, okay, the students from three to one, we would say the student has it, they're partway there, they're a beginner. I really don't know why we need more than that. Now I can tell you from experience that even five levels can be tough. I was once working with a world languages department on one of their rubrics. And you know they as a school had decided to use a one through seven scale to align with the IB diploma program. So in, in our conversation working on their rubric, we realize that, you know, kind of the way they use their criteria and, and the way it played out, it, it was rare that they ever would use a one or a two. That, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, the students were a three through seven. So we were really only dealing with five levels. Listen, I'm not a fan of rubrics that take up real estate or space and describe what students are not. Insufficient evidence is insufficient evidence. And for me, just leave it off the rubric. If it's on the rubric, then it describes an acceptable level of performance. So we set about creating criteria for what I think was conversational fluency, though it's been a few years since, since that conversation occurred. So we started describing the three being a beginner or a novice, a four being partway there, a five being proficient or competent, a six being exemplary, and a seven being, yeah, that's where we got stuck. The labels weren't the issue. The issue was describing each of those levels and distinguishing it from the ones on either side in a way that clearly articulated the criteria. So distinguishing clearly the six from the seven was really challenging for, for us in, in this conversation. You know, it started off with a lot of adverbs and uh, adjectives, you know, very excellent or extensively fluent. Uh, it was just it was just an exercise in in word choice and semantics. So 
you know, as our time finished together working on that uh, rubric in that coaching session, they left thinking they might be better served to either try to make some distinction somewhere else on the scale. They were thinking about, you know, partial or partway or developing, you know, either distinguishing between the degree of fluency for binary skills, you know, like grammar uh, versus the nuances of, of word choice and, and, and sentence structure and creativity, or maybe just going to a four through seven scale, uh, simply just saying, look, you're at the beginning, you're partway there, you're competent, and you have a deep understanding. The point was and is, as soon as you try to authentically describe the differences between these levels, it becomes a lot more challenging. Labeling the levels is not the challenge, the description is the challenge. So while the research doesn't say how many levels, only have as many levels as you need, and more importantly, only have as many levels as you can clearly distinguish between. The 0.5s might make us feel more precise, but it's actually the opposite. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well. That's at Tom Shimmer. Shimmer Education on Facebook, at Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram, and of course, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. Also, please email your questions for assessment corner or any suggestions you have about the podcast to TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be author and speaker, Dr. Kathy Vatterot. You might know Kathy as the homework lady. Uh, because of our extensive research on homework. So we're going to focus on that and the larger picture of student stress and anxiety. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, of course, especially on Apple Podcasts. And if you like the podcast, please spread the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues. Have a great week, everyone. 